My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. So this show is a little bit different. Um, I am no longer going to be by myself uh, from now on. So I'm delighted to welcome my new co-host, Olatz Mompeo. Hi, Olatz. Could you just tell us a bit about yourself? Well, thank you, Victoria, for having me here. And um, I'm honored to join this uh, podcast at Researcher's Code. I'm a huge fan of um, your work, so I'm very happy to be here. Now I'm going to move on and talk about what I'm doing. I'm a PhD student at KCL, like uh, Vicky, and I'm researching genetics and nutrition. Cool, that's great. And that, actually, for those who, of you who've just joined this podcast and don't know who I am, I realized I perhaps didn't introduce myself in earlier episodes. So my name is Victoria Carr. And as Olets mentioned, I'm also a PhD student at King's College London. And I also work with genomics, but more on microbiology side rather than the human side. Both of us will be interviewing women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. We will be interviewing researchers who work from genomics to robotics and use computer science and technology to answer science big questions. On this episode, we'll be talking about cancer and interviewing Dr. Kirsten Haas from the Francis Crick Institute in London on how computer science is helping us understand what factors lead to an increased risk of cancer. So Olatz, I hear that you've been researching a bit about the causes and effects of cancer. So could you please enlighten me with some cancer facts? Um, okay, well, first, I think that we should like understand like all of us, like what, what is cancer and how, how do we understand cancer? Do you know what are the risk factors that might influence cancer? Um, I mean, I think human genetics, maybe. Some people are more likely to have cancers than others, perhaps if their parents may have had a history of cancer. Um, I've also heard in the news lately, types of food may increase your risk of cancer, but I'm not sure what to believe because some of them are like tabloid newspapers. Yeah, so like, I just tend to ignore it. If someone tells me to stop eating chocolate because it will increase my risk of cancer, I will continue to eat chocolate. Um, it's good for your gut. So <laughs> yeah, it's definitely good for your good for your gut microbiome. So yeah, I don't I don't actually know the question the well, answer to that question. There are environmental risk factors, right? For instance, uh, smoking. But the, th the thing is that, for instance, I always thought that smoking was associated to lung cancer, throat cancer, etc. But do you actually know how many types of human cancer tobacco smoking has been associated with? Um, I guess tobacco smoking would be associated with, I guess, lung cancer. Because I guess you kind of breathe in the smoke and then that affects that area more. Um, I would say, I, I guess it's a trick question because it's going to be more than one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to say three types of cancer. 
interest, uh, interesting because uh, one paper from um, uh, Kirsten Haas um, says that it's 17, a total of 17 cancers, oh God, and it's 17. even cancers that are not supposed to have any type of contact with uh, smoking, like stomach cancer, um, colon cancer, etc. So it's a really like a huge risk factor for like all types of cancers. Wow, so even stomach cancer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you know how long is a human genome actually? Um, pretty long, I think. <laughs> um, as in lengthwise, I have no idea. No idea. Well, funny enough, the human genome is two meters long. And, you know, like since we have like trillions of uh, billions of, of cells in, in, in ourselves, if we build all the genome from all our cells together, we can go to the sun and back four times. Wow. So, so I can <laughs> stretch myself out from here to the sun and back. Oh my. Four times. Four <laughs> times. Four times. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> Anyways. That's crazy. Right? And all that information is powering and our bodies. That's incredible. Exactly. And if you, if you to- totaled up all the human beings in the world, that would be like... From this, from here to the sun and back, times I think there's eight billion people on this yeah, planet, yeah. so probably out the solar system. Anyway, I'm geeking out here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. True. So if the DNA is so large, mm-hmm. how does tobacco smoke affect human DNA? Well, tobacco smoke contains a total of uh, seven thousand chemicals, and sixty nine of them are known to be carcinogenic that means that causes cancers through mutations on the genome for instance uh, one of the like most known carcinogens are benzene which is found in plastic as well and um, what con- what contains what makes tobacco addictive is nicotine although we have to say that nicotine is not a carcinogen uh, per se but apparently once you have been diagnosed with cancer nicotine might increase the growth of the tumor Okay, so so I I could be addicted to nicotine, but it doesn't initially cause cancer. It's not carcinogenic at first, but then it has been shown in other studies to have promoted tumor growth. That's so interesting. But even so, if we sequence, if we can sequence the human genome, I guess finding these mutations caused by these carcinogens must be like finding a needle in the haystack right (laughs) it is yeah so we head off to the francis crick institute to talk to dr kirsten Haas, who is an expert in cancer in the human genome You're working on an international project called the Pan-Cancer Analysis of the Whole Genome, or PCAWG. Could you describe what this project is about and what you're trying to find? Sure. So, yeah, we pronounce the abbreviation PCOC, which makes it a bit quicker. Um, And the approach is supposed to um, pull together knowledge from all the different cancer types into, like it says on the box, pan-cancer analysis. So instead of focusing on a certain tumor type that has been sequenced in a country locally, we want to combine them from different international sequencing efforts, um, make sure they have all been treated most equally so we can make bigger analysis on the whole set but on standardized treated um, cancer samples. And so 
to do that, they have split up the effort in different working groups, which solve different parts of the whole problem. So they um, have combined research sets that are very good in the mutation calling to develop algorithms to make very nice, clean mutation calls on the whole set. And then they hand that to the next working group, who would work on the driver detection, for example, and try to figure out what um, the individual driver mutations in a tumor are. And um, for us, we work as part of the evolution and heterogeneity working group. So we try to figure out what different subpopulations are there present in a tumor and um, how their temporal ordering came into being. So what mutation happened before what other mutation? Why is there a need to look at whole um, human genomes to understand cancer? So uh, people would fight you with that statement, but <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, there have um, been lovely studies, and many of them that are just using exomes, which is the um, protein coding parts of the genome, which are very low. And of course, for many of the things we do look at, like the driver genes, those are most commonly found in the protein coding um, genes, so it's it's perfectly fine for that. But we've seen now more and more approaches where rearrangements um, are, play an important role, so where different bits of one chromosome have been linked to another chromosome, um, and that is only possible to pick up if you have structural variants and you can pick them up with um, in your sequencing data, and that's usually just possible if you have whole genome sequencing data and not just picked out the exome. So that gives you a nicer, rounder picture on top of the actual gene levels. It gives you the structural rearrangement. And of course, you can also have driver elements that are not protein coding, that are in the regulatory structures that you might not cover with exomes or any targeted approaches. Yeah, so how many mutations would you be missing out if you just looked at the exome? So the protein coding regions. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, well, it's, it's very hard to say, even in percentage, because the, the different cancer types we look at from the start have a very, very wide mutation spectrum. So you have strongly, highly um, mutated cancer types, sometimes due to external factors that work on these um, these tumors, and um, there might be others that have a very low mutation number, so it's very hard to say how many we miss. I think we actually did the exercise of downsampling to the exome at some point, but it would be great if I had the number in my head now. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, your research um, into how cells become tumors takes inspiration from theories in evolution itself. How do cells evolve to form tumors, and what have you found using this model? So, yeah, um, so what we propose or what we strongly believe in is that we have a Darwinian evolution on working on cancer cells, um, as in, obviously, to become a cancer, you have a cell that um, proliferates to an enormous degree, and for that to work has to circumvent early cell death um, and, yeah, has to pretty much um, go around this whole cell cycle control and... So there are different mutations that can cause this, and we're looking at um, basically how what, what happens in a cancer cell for it to yeah, basically become better at proliferating than all its neighboring cells. And um, so we are looking at different uh, approaches, and one of them is the, um, the NDS ratio, which has been... Um, postulated in the population genetics, where you um, just compare all the non-synonymous mutation at non-synonymous positions to synonymous mutations at synonymous positions, um, which 
simply means is there a mutation on the genome level that causes a difference on the protein level. So those would be the non-synonymous ones. They would introduce a different amino acid. And if you have an, um, basically a higher ratio of those to the, non to the synonymous ones, you would say you have positive selection because mm -hmm. you, have, you see so many more changes to the protein. And um, that was translated to the cancer level. So we look at those ratios there. And you can see that in the tumor types we look at, and many of them, you can see this positive selection happening on cancer genes, on cancer driver genes. Amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> so what you're saying is basically there is um, a positive selection towards cancers where a mutation will cause a change in a protein. This protein may make like the cell function more advantageous compared to perhaps other cells. So then that gets selected and pushed forward. Is that is that a, a layman description? <laughs> well, not even that lay. Yeah, it's um, yeah. So what we are saying is that the um, in most of the tumor types we have enough power to look at. So this all becomes a numbers game to some level. Do we have enough mutations to even do this analysis on? But at mo many of the cancer types we look at, we do see this um, positive selection towards um, changes in the cancer genes. So we're obviously thinking that there is um, a strong mutational driver for these genes to change. And so that's why we are inferring positive selection. Um, that is an ongoing debate for that as well, where people say they um, believe it's more caused by drift and it's all random, and then one of the clones gets goes forward. So um, yeah, or could it be a bit of both? Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's there's actually uh, strong evidence that it might just be. <laughs> yeah, rather than um, you having to fight other researchers <laughs> in your different theories, you could just come to a compromise. Like, well, yeah, it could be both right. So, but then science wouldn't be as interesting with it. So <laughs> great. So. Um, in your work, you use computer science and statistical analysis to understand this huge amount of data. So you must have samples from all different geographical locations, uh, from various body sites and tumors. So what sort of techniques and programming languages do you use for this sort of analysis? So yes, loads of data. I think we had a, my PI has a slide on all the terabytes and where they are. Um, yeah, it, it is a massive amount of data, and um, data handling is actually not quite trivial with this because not only is it an enormous amount, it's also obviously very sensitive data because it contains patient's germline, it's identifiable. So um, it has to be made sure that it's all very secure, um, but that's handled from the basically consortia side of this, so they store it and we get access that has been thoroughly vetted. And uh, once we have it, um, I think we our lab is mostly based around R. Um, yeah, simply because it is so much statistics, as you said. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that is the, the core of it. Obviously, then for all the cluster jobs, you need to be good at bash scripting so you can handle the files. Sometimes it's easier to actually just hack it <laughs> on, on your console in bash because um, R might not really like to read a 15 gigabyte file just 
because you feel like it. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that's very, that reminds me of a lot of the work that um, we, like we do because I work in metagenomics, so yeah. we do a lot of like Linux and shell scripting, mm -hmm. but it's such a contrast to working in a company where they've just got very like black box system where they, when I, when I joined... Um, um, an ad tech company last year, they were really shocked that I knew how to um, program in Shell and Bash. And they said, like, mm. well, why do you need this? <laughs> We've got all our cloud services using just a click button on, you know, Microsoft mm. or AWS or anything. So, yeah, it's actually quite, it's quite great how um, um, computational biologists just go back to, like, the bare bone basics, it open stack very basic <laughs> like true. bash scripting which i find really funny yeah, you're, you're when i talk to people about that so <laughs> you reach sizes file sizes where you don't want to get all the overhead of a massive computational network you just want to bash or maybe maybe perl python something text-based and just get it done <laughs> yeah and um, i guess yeah. because clusters have to cater to so many different research groups <laughs> as well so not one size fits all so you might not have you know different yeah, like user interfaces where it's it might be easy to click a mm. button for one group but for another group like cancer genomics like what you do it's completely different so with so much advancement in genomics and computing power do you think in the future it could be possible to predict whether everyone will get any type of cancer from just sequencing their genomes oh that's a tough question um not even sure that would be an, a good thing just thinking about that's probably not a server that would be even available to everybody so you create a very weird shifted um, prediction for some people but not others and yeah I, don't, I think from what we see at the moment it's not really straightforward or trivial um, I would settle for just being able to come to a nicer grouping of the tumors we see because I think what we are what's more and more emerging from all the different studies that what we how we classify tumors at the moment saying this is a lung cancer this is a breast cancer that is geographically right in the body but there might be different ways where we can classify them also for treatment purposes so saying we identify what caused this tumor and that is something that makes these two tumors very different and also these other two in different parts of the body very similar and we can use that for treatment options because we know what was the initial source i think that is that is a step i would like to see taken forward and not 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 exactly predicting because there have also been recent studies looking at healthy normal tissue and seeing that some of the things we always see in cancers are there in perfectly normal healthy cells so i think that would be a dangerous test to sequence anything from a person and saying mm, we saw this very weird thing we don't you know, quite know what it means but we see there's a lot of cancers i think you wouldn't really help people with that yeah <laughs> there's definitely something that maybe companies might take advantage of um sequencing your genome say oh you've got like maybe a higher predisposed risk to this kind of cancer with like very little scientific backing 
Um, yeah, and lots of issues with perhaps insurance companies taking your data and then, you know, increasing your in your health insurance, for example. Lots of different reasons that I've come across. Um, but yeah, I generally agree it's perhaps not a, a good thing at the moment when we haven't got the security in place and we don't have like the total scientific understanding or characterization yeah. of these mutations. So, yeah. I think I would agree. <laughs> yeah, also the, the education to understand that, I think. I think genetics is a very new field, so maybe it would be too much. I don't know, but the environment is very important, right? We can change that at least. So yeah. Even, mm. yeah, even with, like I said, just look at more what we classify as histologically healthy tissue and then see that there are things there we wouldn't expect because if we only look at cancer and we see certain things there, it's easy to say, are these causal? Or, well, we definitely associate them with it. But if we never looked at anything else, how will we know that this is a specific or is it just an age-related process in some people? Um, yeah, so I think we need a much more full-scale oh, This is like a debate for a, a, another <laughs> debate. Is this aging or is this cancer? Is yeah. this dementia or is this aging? Yeah. You said that you might not expect some, um, some results. Like, what is the most shocking result that you have ever had? Like, oh my God, this... What's this, this eureka moment? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like this, oh, this cancer is tissue is very similar to this one I wasn't expecting this um it wasn't quite this I think it comes back to the when we try to say what happened before what are the mutation and we try to where we can time events relative to, to each other and um, then there have been some steps taken trying to map this back to real life years mm -hmm. and then seeing how many years and in some cases decades before diagnosis some of these quite massive changes so we're talking about whole genome duplications in those cases which we can time so where you suddenly have doubled the amount of genomic material and that can be present like decades before diagnosis which is yeah for was mind-blowing for me maybe other people were expecting this but i was quite surprised that changes at that scale are present that early Wow, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So, but not enough that you'd confidently predict that because there's a duplication, they would definitely get cancer in two years. But it's just like that association you saw was what was suggestive that it could could happen. In exactly, we, we saw it in there, but I wouldn't go as far as to say if I found that in another person, I would point the finger and say, mm -hmm. "Oh, you're definitely gonna get X type of cancer in the next five years." Yeah, so. You undertook an undergrad in bioinformatics, uh, which combines biology, computer science, mathematics, and statistics. Um, what inspired you to choose bioinformatics? <laughs> it's a very good question because it sounds so groundbreaking, inspiring. And uh, honestly, when I finished high school, so the, in the German school system, you have like majors in the last two years where you have more hours and your exams are weighted heavier. And uh, I had math and biology. And when it came towards the end of my school career, I was wondering, okay, what do I do with this? I had an interest in medical sciences before, but I wouldn't, I didn't quite want to become a doctor. That wasn't wasn't for me. Um, my dad was very set on engineering, and pretty much had already tried to 
push me through the door of, oh, that's going to be fun. And I thought, well, but biology, I really like biology. And, and I really just sat down and Googled what what uses biology and math. That's my inspiring story. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I found bioinformatics. And it's, I mean, it, it hasn't been very greatly advertised before. It's not like you see it in the media a lot, or at least not at that time, maybe. Um, so I read about it and thought, oh, this is this sounds amazing. This is exactly what I want to do. So yeah, I applied to, uh, well, one place first, then my parents made me apply to more. <laughs> um, yeah, and got into the university I wanted back then, and that's it. <laughs> that's really good, because, yeah. I mean, even today, there are very few bioinformatics courses. True. Like, I didn't even know what bioinformatics was until, um, I guess, my final year of uni. Because I did, I had a similar situation where I started my degree, do, so it was a natural sciences degree, so you can, like, mix and match, whatever. So I started doing physics, mm -hmm. and I thought, yeah, really mathematical. And then it was like, oh, I'm not sure. Then switched to biology, and then I was like oh, I have to memorize loads of facts. I'm not good at that. And then by the end of my third year, I was like, oh, there's a thing called systems biology, which combines both. I'll do both. And then I've been told by my friends that I'm really indecisive and that's just just an excuse to do something that you, you can't decide what you want to specialize in. Finding a uni with a curriculum wasn't that easy either. Most of them had either you started a biology undergrad and then you could specify in your master's or you started a computer science undergrad and you could specify in your master's. And I think there were only four unis in Germany that I looked at um, that had it bioinformatics from the get-go. Well, I say from the get-go, the first few years you still have mostly math and computer science and then biology. And then you have one hour a week where a bioinformatics professor tells you what you're actually supposed to do later on, which can carry you through if you struggle in any of the others. Like you say, oh, another model organism, how exciting. <laughs> <laughs> or for other people, it might be the math side or the computer science side. And they go, oh, this is not what I thought we would do. And then you had the one hour a week where it's like, this is a genome. This is what happens. This is what we can look at with all this data I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when can I start <laughs> yeah well you did your PhD looking at the prediction of a uh, virus epitopes epitopes yeah epitopes. Uh, epito yeah it's epitopes <laughs> epitopes I love that word epitopes, epitopes. <laughs> can you explain us uh, a bit more about it and how did you switch from there to cancer research you really did your homework, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just a Google <laughs> search. I mean, Google exists now. So, oh. um, yes. Um, so I started um, actually working completely virology, which was, um, well, I hadn't done virology before, but the bioinformatics side, which was looking at noroviruses, which are these horrible gastrointestinal, yeah. Makes you sick. Unpleasant, yes, makes yes. you very sick. Yeah, you feel sick for a few days. Yes. <laughs> I call it two bucket disease. I oh, can let you figure out why. Um, <laughs> and uh, we worked on patients that, also well, it's normally um, an infection that is relatively, well, it's not pleasant, but it goes over in within a week. And most healthy individuals, grown-ups, have no side effects from it. But we were working on patients that had received um, organ transplants. So they were on immune suppressants, which made their own immune system not work against the donor organ, but that also meant that they pretty much had no immune system. And when they got the norovirus infection, that led to them shedding the virus for months, and I think one case over a year. And we could use that quite nicely to 
um, look at how the virus evolves within a patient because usually you just see outbreak waves and then you can compare the strains that, co strains that cause the outbreak. And in this case, we wanted to see what happens within one person. And um, it's quite non-invasive because you can take stool samples and compare um, the, the virus within. And that was extremely exciting. I could work with genomic sequences, but it was also, obviously these cases are very rare, luckily. So we only had five patients and then another set of three, so I think eight in total. And you couldn't draw very significant consequences from that. It was all very anecdotal. And so I always wanted to upscale it a little bit to try to make more better predictions. And um, but what I really liked is that I could work with clinical data directly because lots of bioinformatics undergrad is um, look at this database, extract sequences, compare them. And um, I really liked having this interaction with the clinic and the clinicians. And um, yeah, from there we moved on to human endogenous retroviruses, which are these ancient viruses that integrated into the human genome loads of years ago and um, integrated into the germline. So you pass it on from generation to generation, and you have these remnants in your human genome. Some of them can still retrotranspose the younger ones, and we looked at the expression in cancer tissue of those, and that evolved further to get into contact co with the immunology department at the university, and they then wanted to um, do a prediction server because they were designing uh, T-cell therapies for cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things you can use in cancer treatment, as we discussed before, you have the mutations changing proteins, and you can use that to say, oh, if I have a protein sequence that is only in tumor cells and not in the normal cells, or I can train the immune system to recognize these, I can destroy the can get get the own immune system to target cancer cells and get rid of the cancer cells with the patient's immune system. So th what you need to find is these little peptide sequences that are only present in cancer cells and not in the normal cells. Um, and there have been loads of advantages, advances in this field over the last year. There was a Nobel Prize this year. And um, so what the group we worked with together, in the end it became a company over <laughs> the course of the project, um, they wanted a little web server where they could just paste in the peptide sequences they were thinking of or they had found in another way and try to figure out um, if there's any cross-reaction. So that was pretty much a string search in bioinformatic terms um, because it, it's important that it's not a perfect match. The immune system doesn't do perfect string matching. They um, pretty much have little positions that can differ and they would still, the immune system would still recognize this peptide and target other proteins. Um, so we set up a little web server where you can post in a sequence and you say how many mismatches you would allow and you search for all the other proteins that have this and then it also cross-referenced to an expression database saying are these genes even expressed in certain tissues in the, especially in the vital tissues because you, sometimes you can say oh in certain um, tissues it's okay if those get some collateral damage from this therapy and um, yeah, that turned out very nicely and was heavily used. Congratulations. <laughs> well, Amazing, yeah. It was one of these cases where the, this, the other project was my main project, and this started as a little side project, and 
Um, I wasn't too keen on it at first, I have to say, because I, I'm not a web developer. So I could do, the backend was all nice and the database questioning how many, how where is it expressed and the string search, that's all fine. And then it said, okay, now make it accessible for us. Do a web server. I said, web, web server, oh, okay, we don't have any web development. Hmm. So I pretty much had to sit together with my friend who was very good at making MySpace pages and <laughs> set up uh, and um, yep uh, amazing so you learnt lots of JavaScript and yes. HTML yes. and CSS yes. and then you become a front end developer yep. that's great <laughs> I actually had to do that at some point I was like I'm so out of my depth this is like definitely not a biometricians you know but yeah you end up I find with like learning to code you just get shoved with these mm. projects and then you're forced to learn so yeah I was very lucky that my old lab was pretty much Java-based, so Java was okay, I was a famous Java, so moving to JavaScript was not pleasant, but <laughs> was doable. I was going to say, Java is quite a difficult language, well, so I th yeah, moving from Java to JavaScript, I would have yeah. thought is a bit, is okay, but maybe different, like, it's different way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's, I find it less bulky. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Ah, okay, cool. So I've never met anyone who's like been like, oh yeah, JavaScript. Java was really easy, and then going to JavaScript was like Java was a little part bit of difficult. our curriculum actually. So that nice. that was fun. So that we did Java and we did Perl, and that that we had to learn everything else and just came on top of. Yeah, Perl. I remember. Perl. See, we never really learned Perl because it was one of those like old legacy programming languages that <laughs> like no one ever that. learns. And then I actually had mm. to use Perl and I was like, right, yeah, now I'm getting down to the serious bioinformatics. Like I respect people who use Perl <laughs> and Java. I'm just like, this is proper bioinformatics. <laughs> Well, you've done a lot of coding um, and you've got a lot of experience in computer science and also web development as well that we've heard. So what advice would you give to women and minorities who want to work in technology and computer science, especially when there are fewer women and minorities working in computational sciences and I think more so in bioinformatics than more wet lab based biology? Again, a tough one. <laughs> um, yeah, I would just say to try to not compete with everybody. I think people can get very um, focused on this. I have to be the best at all times because I have to prove myself, but that can alienate people that are in this exact same position as you are. So I would say to try to find people that you can work together with and that are allies and that you can learn from because it might be very hard if you're in a position where you're the only person of your background to find anybody to give you good advice because not not because they mean they don't mean well but because they don't really know what advice to give you because they don't have the same background there's often things where you just assume that somebody else has the same knowledge you have and that might not be the case so always ask questions just so to get everybody on the same playing field. And every time you think you ask a stupid question, the problem is other people in the room have the same question in their head and they just don't want to ask. So they will be really glad that somebody asks. And then again, you already have found people that you can work together with in a nice way. And yeah, I think just try to not be intimidated by 
the fact that you might be the only person of like, your ethnic background or your gender or any of those um, things and try to yeah try to not let anybody tell you that you can't do anything because there's still loads of those around <laughs> and just um, yeah I think it's just really important to have this get this community up to not to not basically go back into your corner and say okay I've had this bad experiences with somebody so I now want to like brood in my corner and really show them always try to reach out and make it an, a community effort because it's easier on yourself if you don't try to hide in your own corner and try to fight this for yourself and yeah I think that's it that is fantastic (laughs) you are listening to the researchers code podcast if you enjoyed this episode why not subscribe to us on itunes spotify or whatever podcasting platform you use also if you could give us a rating that would be really helpful for other people finding us